This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is David Murphy. I'm the Executive Director of the International Rescue Committee here in San Diego. And so I'm about to take you on a journey of refugees. I'm going to talk about refugees overseas, setting up and running refugee camps, refugee resettlement, and how resettlement works here in the United States and here in San Diego. I first would like to thank very much UCSD for granting IRC the honor to come and speak for you tonight. And it is truly an honor, and we really appreciate um, this open invitation. We hope you learned something this evening. As I talk about refugees, just imagine for a moment that you are a refugee. Imagine for a moment that you are one of the thousands, millions of people that I am describing here. Think about what it means to be a refugee. And so, the International Rescue Committee, we are an organization working in more than 40 countries around the world and 28 cities here in the United States, where we work in some of the worst countries in the world, war-torn, uh, conflict, and that where the government is unable, if there is a government, to be able to provide services to the people in their country. And so the refugee is a person that has to flee their home. They fear, a, they have a well-founded fear of persecution. They fear they are going to die. You flee your home. You have probably had to leave behind everything you had, businesses, possessions, house, and you cross an international boundary. The host country will then invite in the United Nations, UNHCR, UN High Commission for Refugees, that has the global mandate for the care and protection of refugees. This is based upon a number of Geneva Conventions that started in the, the 50s, um, that, that set up after post-World War II what to do with all the refugees and displaced um, post-World War II. UNHCR will come into the host country, and by having the, the um, power to grant refugee status to people, they will give an interview, and they will then grant this status. By having refugee status, the host country has agreed not to push you back into harm's way. They will not, it's called refoulement, and that they will not push you back into the country you came from. Therefore, you have refugee status, and you will be able to remain in that host country. There are more than 65 million people displaced in the world today. That number continues to grow. That is the population of Italy today, 65 million. That's the size of, of, of a lot of countries. And, and yet that number is so huge that it's hard to fathom how many displaced there are. We haven't seen this many people displaced since World War II. And that number continues to grow. One year ago, it was only 60 million. But now there's ongoing conflicts in Syria that we hear a lot about where there are more than 5 million internally displaced and another 4 to 5 million refugees that have had to flee Syria. There is Somalia, Sudan, um, Northern Africa, Libya, uh, Egypt, um, into 
the Middle East, Iraq, um, into Asia, Afghanistan, Burma. And, and so when you look at the world and as you watch the news, uh, unfortunately, the world is a pretty crazy place these days. There's not a lot of peace going on. There's not a lot of stability. And so these numbers continue to grow. So out of the 65 million people displaced, approximately two-thirds are what we consider internally displaced. So they have had to flee their home, their village, their town, but they have not crossed an international boundary. So they are, but, but they are internally displaced within their country. There's another one-third that are refugees. So they're the ones that have crossed an international boundary, and they, um, by definition, then um, are a refugee if they have registered and gone through the process with the United Nations. So what is it like in a refugee camp? And so as someone that has worked overseas for many, many years in many different countries, the IRC is one of the first organizations that will come in and help set up a refugee camp. And so it will start with an empty field that the host country government will allocate for refugees. It's not going to be prime real estate. Uh, it's going to be out in the middle of nowhere. And there will be just refugees coming usually only carrying what they can on their back. They don't have the luxury of loading up a car or a moving van or traveling with all of their possessions. And so one of the first things we need to do is to get everyone out of the elements. And so we will begin with a non-food item distribution, plastic sheeting to set up a tent, blankets, jerry cans, cooking utensils, just the very basic things that people need to survive. Then we will begin to set up emergency health care. You will have people that are sick and injured uh, due to uh, fleeing. And also just within any population, you have sick people that, that need medical attention. There will need to be some kind of water system set up immediately. Um, that will usually involve trucking in water uh, to begin with and then setting up a more permanent system. And then a food pipeline needs to be set up, and this is under the auspices of World Food Program that has the global remit for um, distribution of food. The food comes from many donor countries like the United States that donate grains, pulses, sugar, salt, and oil. And then every month in a refugee camp, there is a distribution per person uh, of this food, which is about... 2,100 calories per day is how we measure it out of, of the grains and the pulses that, that each person would get. So, refugee camps. You've all seen pictures of refugee camps. Um, and they vary in size from a few thousand refugees. Like this one is uh, Shemelba Refugee Camp in Ethiopia with Eritrean refugees. Um, there are newer refugee camps that are set up. Setting up a refugee camp is basically urban planning. And so at the onset, big empty field. But then we begin to demarcate out where the plots of land will be, how much space everyone will have, where the latrines are going to go, where the water points are going to go, where schools will eventually be put in, where a community center where the leaders can come together. So all of this has to be planned out. Um, and so you can see this is a much larger one in Jordan, uh, for example, this refugee camp. And so some refugee camps, a few thousand, all the way up to almost 300,000 people in Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. 
and even bigger. So um, you know, there's, again, 65 million people displaced. It's hard to put your, your uh, mind around numbers that big. And so once a refugee camp is up and running, the average stay for a refugee in a refugee camp today is 17 years. So this is a school. So this is how we start, under a tent, under tarps, under trees. And we begin with teaching and you know, primary school, formal schools, non-formal schools, accelerated learning, adult literacy, kind of the whole gamut of education. One thing that uh, people don't realize here in America is the passion refugees have overseas for education. Everybody knows the value of education and getting an education. Kids want to go to school. And even having a, a school like this um, that's in the heat of the day and um, just in this ragtag um, structure, but then over time we are able to get funding and then we begin to um, start to construct better, better schools. So this is just an example where we're able to then to move to a tent um, to continue to provide education. After a tent, then we can also do more um, semi-permanent structures, tin roof, uh, mud brick. Um, and then finally, after a couple years, uh, we can get beyond these kind of temporary structures, uh, which are not conducive for, for teaching, but, and yet they're packed full of kids every day. We usually have to run two, two shifts of classes. We do one shift in the morning for one group of kids and a second group in the afternoon for another group of kids. And then finally, um, after a couple years, we will have found the funding, and we will then be able to construct more permanent-type structures like, like this that has a more permanent, lasting, um, lasting feature. Latrines are very important. It's something you wouldn't think about in a refugee camp, but that's actually one of the first things that we need to set up with public health is to come in and set up where the latrine's going to be. And so something as very simple as this, which is a um, cement-constructed latrine slab that would go over a pit that we would dig, um, and then we would just build some type of structure to go around it for privacy. But by having latrines put in immediately, we are able to prevent um, a lot of diseases from spreading um, through proper sanitation. So water. We begin with having to truck in water from wherever a source is. We will set up these type of uh, water tanks that we will dump the water into, and then there is a water distribution that's done. So it's very labor-intensive to bring the water in, but then we will try to find some type of water source around the, the refugee camp, and, and every refugee camp is different. Some you can drill wells, some you pull from a river. Some, so um, it's whatever the, the local hydrogeological conditions are. Eventually, we try to put in more permanent water systems. And so here's just a, a more permanent water storage tank, for example. A lot of times, the services that we are providing for a refugee camp, we will also provide for the host community, the surrounding community, because then we get into a situation of 
The refugees get services, the host community does not. That leads to conflict. And so we will do a lot around conflict mitigation by providing the, the same services for refugees with the host community. And so then this would just be more of a, the permanent water system that's, that's constructed. And usually it's the, the women that have to come in and fetch the, the water. We do a lot with gender-based violence. Um, gender-based violence is a huge problem around the world and in refugee camps. So you've got a young woman that has had to flee their home. They have left the protection of their, their village, their family, their brother, father, husband, whatever, and they have had to travel at great risk across areas that is not their home into other countries and even in a refugee camp there is a lot of risk for young women women even men um, for gender-based violence so this is a somali refugee camp where we are putting together a dignity kit for women a dignity kit is as simple as a headscarf a flashlight some some body soap some soap for um, washing clothes, and sanitary pads. Something very simple, and yet it means a lot for the refugee women. So here is a school. So again, I, I come back to think about what would it be if you were a refugee, if you were one of these young kids that were living in a refugee camp. Nobody wants to be a refugee. You are forced to be a refugee. You are forced to flee. You cannot go back home. The average stay for a refugee in a refugee camp is 17 years. So that's a generation of children that are going to grow up in a refugee camp. So what's going to happen with these kids? So when you are a refugee, you have three options. One, you can return back to your home country. They're assuming there is peace, there is stability. You can go back home and resume your, your life. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of peace going on in the world. And as I mentioned, the number of, of displaced continues to rise. The second option is you can remain in the host country that you're living in. But most host country governments do not want refugees to stay in your country. You could have tens or hundreds of thousands of refugees living in your country. Uh, government already has enough problems and issues with their host population, with economics and security and clan and tribal issues. And so you don't necessarily want to allow refugees to remain in the country. So, so this is pretty standard around the world that refugees cannot stay in the country they're living in other than having refugee status. So then the third option for refugees is resettlement to another country. And so... Every year, a number of countries around the world resettle refugees from the refugee camps. And this is where every country comes up with their own policies around refugee resettlement. Historically, the United States has always been a leader in refugee resettlement. And for the last several years, the U.S. has resettled 70,000 refugees from all around the world. Last year, it was raised to 85,000. And for this year, it was raised to 110,000. This is based upon a presidential determination that's made every year by the sitting president uh, around September, October of every year. The president will then decide how many refugees are going to come and from what part of the world they will come. 
from. So it's you know, macro numbers, big numbers. And so in 2016, here were the numbers. So for example, in Africa, there was 25,000 refugees that um, were allocated to come here. This is also where the number 10,000 Syrians come from, from this presidential determination that we've heard uh, that number thrown around a lot. And so, so this is where these numbers come from. Then it is up to the United States State Department that has a Bureau for Populations, Refugees, Migration that is responsible for physically going out to refugee camps and beginning to identify potential refugees for resettlement. And so with more than 65 million people displaced, we're going to bring in maybe 110,000. It's less than a drop in the bucket of refugees that are going to come. So we need to prioritize who we're going to bring in. So we look for those that are most in need. Who are those that are in most need of protection? Members of opposition groups, political parties, LGBT community, um, people with serious medical conditions that may die without treatment. Just a way to, that we can come in and prioritize who are those that are in the greatest need that we could bring to the United States versus millions of people. Once these individuals are identified, it is up to the Department of Homeland Security to physically go to refugee camps and begin to conduct in-person interviews with the individuals and the, the nuclear family and nucleus family is kept together. They ask very intrusive personal questions. They fill up a, a case file on you. They go away. They come back. They re-interview you. Does your story stay the same? They will do this four, six, eight times over the course of a year or longer until the Department of Homeland Security is satisfied that they have an accurate case file on you. If you have cleared through that and you are still in the refugee resettlement program for the United States, it, your pro, the process is then moved over to background screening, security checks, security vetting, where your bio graphical data, biodata will be run through up to 14 different databases, FBI, CIA, Interpol, uh, Department of Defense. Just We, we have quite a, a huge um, intelligence and security apparatus uh, worldwide that you will be run through for security vetting, security checks. You can then be brought back in for more questioning. If at any time you're dinged on the security checks, um, again, you're brought in for either for further investigation or you're out of the, the security, um, you're out of the refugee program. Once you have cleared through all of these hurdles, which usually takes a couple years or longer, you are then eligible for resettlement to the United States. One of the final things we find out is if you have any family members currently living in the U.S. If you do, then we will have you travel to the same city as your existing family members so that they can help with the acclimation process of coming to America. If you do not have any family members, then you could actually end up somewhere in the United States where there is a resettlement agency and that they have had previous experience resettling refugees from that country. So there is a process behind it. In the United States, there are nine refugee resettlement agencies that work to, to resettle refugees. Here in San Diego, we have four refugee resettlement agencies. IRC is one of them, Catholic Charities, Jewish Family Services, and Alliance for African Assistance. The religious affiliation doesn't mean anything. Um, we all resettle uh, refugees from any countries, any nationalities, any religions. 
And so the refugees that came to the United States in 2016, you can see the breakdown, um, where Afghanistan, Congolese, Iraqi, Iran, and for the first time we're starting to see Syrians coming. And so this pie chart more or less has stayed the same for the last several years, with the exception that Burmese are, are reducing some and Syrians are, are increasing. So this is nationwide. This is a, across, the, across the country. Here in San Diego, here are the arrivals uh, for the, the top five countries that came. San Diego is a very welcoming community and always has been. On average, they will resettle 3 to 4% of the total population of refugees that come to the United States. A lot of it has to do with the family ties. And so there's a, a very large Iraqi population in El Cajon. And other, there's a Somali population, an Afghan population. Um, and so that's one reason why um, so many would be coming to, to San Diego County. So a refugee resettlement organization. Uh, we are the ones that will physically pick up people at the airport. Prior to them coming, we will try to find an apartment, two, three, four bedroom apartment, uh, which can be very challenging here in San Diego to find affordable housing. We will be able to provide a very basic apartment setup, kitchen table, chairs, beds, linens, uh, kitchen utensils, so that when we pick them up at the airport and take them to their new apartment, they're ready to go. We begin with the safety and acclimation process immediately. Depending where you came from, you could be a Burmese refugee that lived in a grass hut all your life. You never drove a car. You may never have even had a key to unlock a door because you never had a door. And so we, we literally start at, at that place with everyone that arrives to, to gauge what their experience is, what they know. Um, English skill set is also very important. And so a lot of times we will be able to enroll people into vocational English as second language courses, which is a very practical English curriculum. It's not theoretical English grammar, but it's focused on transportation and employment because the amount of funding we get from the federal government to resettle refugees is only several hundred dollars per person per month for a maximum of eight months. After that, they need to be on the road to economic self-sufficiency. So early employment is very important. And, and so that's something that all the resettlement agencies really work on is, is getting that job, um, which here in San Diego, it's going to be a minimum wage job working in housekeeping, uh, the restaurant industry. Um, just So even if you're a doctor from Baghdad, you need to start somewhere um, as your entry point into the United States. We do a lot with finances. And so you come to America, you do not have a credit score. As you know, uh, without a credit score, you usually can't open a bank account, you can't sign a lease. So we are a certified financial lender here in California. We will give a loan for $100. You pay it back over five months. We report it up to the credit bureaus. You have an entry-level credit score. We can do it again with $300. Uh, you pay it back, we report it up. Uh, your credit score goes up. We can give auto loans. We can give business startup loans. We do, a lot of refugees will start some type of home-based um, businesses, income generation, microenterprise. Um, it can be 
childcare, it could be uh, food preparation, uh, some type of catering. Um, and so this is, we, we work a lot with the, the financial piece, doing a lot of financial counseling. We will have refugees come in with, a, with their pile of junk mail. What do I do with all this? Um, where I used to live, there was no such thing as junk mail. Um, which is important junk mail? Which is really from the IRS and which is just fake IRS. So, I mean, but, I mean it's important to, to be able to figure this out. And so we do a lot around the, the financial piece to ensure that refugees are on the right path to economic self-sufficiency and they don't get underwater uh, financially. Because as you know, once, once you're underwater, um, it's really challenging to be able to get out. Um, we're just finishing up. We have a free tax program where we are um, preparing federal and state income tax for free for more than 3,000 individuals um, this year. So today is their last day. Um, they're very happy. Um, we also have a food security unit, and this is where we have urban gardens in our office around City Heights, and out in, we have another office out in El Cajon. We have more than 150 farmers that rent a plot of land, maybe this size, where they grow crops for household consumption, for trading with each other, and for selling at farmer's markets. We run the farmer's markets in City Heights and El Cajon. We also have programs that will kind of link the education, the income generation, the, the English skill set. So we have this project CHOP, which will take a dozen women from one country, from Somalia, for example, and they will work at a commercial kitchen that we're currently using at the YMCA Copley Price, and they will learn very basic food processing, food preparation, cutting fruits, vegetables, how to make a flour out of a radish or a cucumber. Um, so so there, there's a training component, but it's all done in English, so they practice their English skill set, so ESL, but it's also employment-focused, so that the, the goal is after 12 weeks or so that they are able to get a job. And, and so, so this is ways that we are able to combine different um, programs to help the, the newly arrived refugees. We do a lot with youth. Uh, we work in the, the middle schools and high schools. Um, we do a lot of mentoring and tutoring because we really want to help youth acclimate into America. And can you imagine how difficult it is to be a teenager coming to America, trying to, trying to get along, trying to acclimate in? Your English skill set may not be so good. So we do a lot with really trying to help the youth uh, succeed, help with homework, explain the homework, re, re, re uh, explain the homework, um, even after the teacher has explained it. Really help you succeed. So you either get a high school diploma or a GED. So again, so that you're on the, the track to, um, to success. We then help with a lot of youth um, to get um, small scholarships to go to colleges, city college. And even a few are able to go to some of the larger colleges and universities. We have a full immigration department. And so a refugee that comes to the United States is totally legal to come. They can travel. They can work. After you have been here for one year, you're eligible for a green card. After you have been here for five years, you're eligible for citizenship. 
So we provide citizenship classes, which is middle school social studies uh, teaching about who the presidents are and our constitution and, and so that you can go and take the test and become a U.S. citizen. We find that most refugees do want to become citizens. Again, nobody wants to be a refugee. You are forced to be a refugee. You know you can't go back home. That chapter of your life has closed. You now have the opportunity to come to America, and you want to make the most of it. And so we find that most refugees do want to become citizens and participate in America. So what does that mean? Where are our moral and ethical values around this? I have mentioned the current situation of refugees overseas. As you know, refugees are in the, the, the spotlight and in the news almost on a daily basis. Unfortunately, a couple, a couple years ago, refugees enjoyed bipartisan support. Everybody supported refugees. Nobody wants to be a refugee, and we were welcoming. The United States is a country that is built upon immigration and refugees. Bring us your tired, your poor, your homeless. That is the fabric of what America is. Unfortunately, starting a couple years ago with the political process, the word refugees began to take on a negative connotation. Refugees, immigration, immigrants, illegal immigrants, Muslim terrorists, all combined into one nice tweet, one nice soundbite, when actually nothing could be further from the truth. So fast forward to where we are today. There have been several executive orders that have come out uh, that, that dramatically impact refugees. The first executive order that came out um, a couple months ago, that was the one that put the immediate halt on refugee resettlement. Um, refugees were stopped in transit. People were stuck at the airport. That executive order was then tied up in the courts, and there was a stay of execution on it. And then so that one just went away. A second executive order um, then came out about a month ago now and with very similar intent but with just more legal language. That one is also held up in the courts right now. The, what that executive order is is that they want to reduce the total number of refugees that come from 110,000 down to 50,000. They want to have a pause for four months on all refugee resettlement so no more refugees coming in for four months. And they want to have a travel ban on six different countries um, around the world. So this executive order is also held up in the courts. Many people ask, so what's going to happen? We don't know. We are in uncharted territory, uncharted waters right now. We're not sure where we're going with this administration. Several other executive orders that have... Um, that are uh, impacting us, especially here in San Diego, are the executive orders around immigration and building the wall and the expansion of powers of ICE, immigration, and Customs and Border Patrol. And that this is really creating a lot of fear in the community. And our offices are inundated with people coming in. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to be deported? Is there going to be a deportation force? I came in as a refugee two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, am I going to be deported? Are my kids okay? Um, and so it's, it's really creating a lot of fear in the community, unfortunately. So that's something that we're dealing with is all this misinformation, um, wrong information that continues to, to come out about refugees. So what can we do? And so, you know, 
refugees, it's a very complex issue. It's international humanitarian law. There are 65 million people displaced in the world today. Most of these refugee camps are in third world countries, in Kenya and Ethiopia and Pakistan and with, with Syria and Iraq right now, with Jordan, Turkey, um, Lebanon, that, that are shouldering the burden of having to keep so many refugees in their country. They don't have a choice if they want to keep refugees or not. The burden is placed on them. There are countries that can donate and support the United Nations, UNHCR, UN High Commission for Refugees, that can support international agencies like the IRC to help provide support. But there is no... There is no law, there is no international law that forces countries to support refugees financially. So the question then is, where is the political processes behind it? The world continues to be a crazy place. There are more and more displaced in the world today. Where is the international leadership to hold governments accountable when they are causing displacement in their country? And, and, and this goes to a much bigger question about the, the lack of international leadership at all levels. The United Nations, individual countries, the European Union, America, um, that we would um, need to be able to step up. And yet, a lot of times, we don't. So my fear is that I'm going to be standing here one year from now saying there's even 5 million more refugees and displaced in the world today um, without political leadership. Um, here in the United States, refugee resettlement, that's become a bad word. Um, refugees are coming. They're bad. They're evil. They're all terrorists. Refugees are fleeing terrorism. They have seen the horrors of ISIS firsthand. They have lost loved ones. They have lost families. They know what terrorism is. These are people that are fleeing terrorists. To come to the United States through the refugee program, you are one of the most thoroughly security-vetted individual to come to the United States. The United States brings in millions of people every year through different visa programs, work visas and student visas, where there is no security vetting process in place. And so this is to come here. You, you are the most thoroughly security-vetted person to come to the United States, full stop. They talk about, well, we need more robust extreme vetting. I would actually argue that there already is extreme vetting with refugees and that we should actually probably be looking at other populations that come in, but not with the refugees. It is also correcting the narrative out there about refugees, who they are. These are refugees. These are young men and women that are going to be the future of America. There's always been a fear of, of the unknown. There's always been a fear of foreigners coming. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, at the end of the Vietnam War, there were hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese coming. There was fear when they came. In 1980, there was more than 200,000 refugees in Camp Pendleton. Since that time, the Vietnamese have come in. They have acclimated into America. They are successful businessmen, businesswomen. Their kids are going to school. And, I mean, they, they are part of the fabric of America of what makes us great. And so it is the duty of our government, of our institution, of our religious institutions, and also of us individually 
to, to be able to speak out about refugees, to correct the narrative, to be able to say, no, that is not correct about refugees. Last year, the U.S. was going to bring in 10,000 Syrians. It's just a drop in the bucket. While it sounds like that's a huge number, oh my gosh, 10,000, um, that's not a lot of individuals to come. There's more than 4 million refugees, Syrian refugees, plus another 8, 9 million. Um, you know, we don't have exact figures on the number of, of refugees uh, that are displaced from any country. But what about those people? What is their future? That picture I had of all those young school children, are they going to be displaced for 17 years? Is there going to be yet another generation of children that are going to be growing up in refugee camps? What else can we do about it? And so it's get involved. Uh, contact your elected officials. They do want to hear from us. Uh, elected officials at all levels. And that is where I'm going to stop for now. And I know I've gone through a lot. Um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to open it up for questions near the end here. We also have a table set up at the back um, with more information about IRC. Um, we currently have a campaign to help raise funding uh, for the uh, young men and women uh, that are here today. And so, uh, Mojava, come on up. So. She's going she's gonna to talk, and then we will open it up for questions. And you can ask questions to, to all of us. So, I was seven when I saw a dead body. A bomb had history near my school as I was walking home. Everybody rushed over there. I didn't know what was going on, so I followed them. The, the air was black from dust, and there was blood everywhere. There was a woman lying in front of me with her leg cut off. She was screaming for water, crying for water for the, the bomb. Because of the bomb, I also avoid crowds now. That was 13 years ago, and it's just one of the tragic I have to witness and endure in my short life. My name is Muhubo. I'm 20 years old, and I'm a Somali refugee who was born in Nairobi, Kenya. I would like to tell you some of my stories so you have the chance to understand what it's like, not just for me, but for many other youth and families who are forced to leave the home country they love. Because of terrorism attack, my hope is that with a clear picture, you can understand to work with us, improve the condition in our home country, and help fight for our civil rights. Not only we all deserve to live in peace, but we also deserve to, to be equal member of society. My story starts with my mom. She was 16 years old when she flew to Nairobi. She had to leave Somalia because of the civil war. She flew to Nairobi with her friends. My mom doesn't like to talk about her story because her brother was killed right in front of her when she was only 16 years old. He was shot to death because of protesting against the government. He was 17 years old. 
That is why my grandparents told her to go, to run away. No one should have to experience and tragic yet still do today. When my mom flew to Nairobi, she found a job as a housekeeping to exchange food and shelter. When she was 17 or 18 years old, she met my father, also a Somalian, and get married. Now they have three girls and two boys. Things changed when I was five. My father left to work in Dubai. My mom, who was pregnant with my brother, left us to come to the United States. We didn't know what was going on when she was leaving us that night. I thought she was going to her work. When I, I went to bed, I never got to say goodbye. When my, my parents left, my siblings and I, we lived with our aunt. It was such a sad and difficult times. We were scared every single day because Nairobi was such a dangerous city. When I got older, I showed up, a terrorist group attack start making trouble in the city. Remember the terrorist attack in Westgate that lasted over 48 hours? That was Al-Shabaab. Because of Al-Shabaab, Nairobi was such a dangerous. The police went door to door to look for a terrorist group. If and will ask a residents for their legal documents, People were arrested if they did not have any documents. Unfortunately for us, my uncle was arrested and was deported to Somalia. So my aunt was left to raise four kids by herself. As I can sure you can imagine, growing up in Nairobi without my parents was hard for many reasons. We were children. We didn't celebrate any tradition or holidays. We didn't go to school much often because the school was expensive and we were scared of a show up. Instead, a teacher would come and homeschool us. We felt disconnected from our world and we didn't have many friends. It was like we lost our childhood. Before my mom left, I never felt sad. In 2010, my mom came back to Nairobi and applied for all of us to join her in United States. It took four years for application to be approved. Finally, in 2014, my siblings and I flew to San Diego by ourselves with the help of IOM. By the time we got approved to join our mother in United States, I was 16. I was scared. We didn't bring even a single cloth. I was scared of a plane because I heard about the disappearance of Malaysia airplane and I was scared to fly. When we got off the plane, I saw my mom. For first in four years, we cried when we saw each other. I got to meet my little brother for the first time. It was so weird seeing him in person because I usually see him in Skype. Moving to San Diego has been very good for us as a family, but also moving has challenged. You, as you can imagine, to start with the food, it was so different. For the first two weeks in San Diego, I didn't eat because 
Food was salt and sugar. <laughs> the first time I had pizza, I loved it. <laughs> now I eat pizza every Friday. <laughs> also, going to school was dream come true for me and my siblings. But it, also, it wasn't also being easy because if you remember, we didn't receive a farming school in Kenya. And now we have a new whole set of rules to follow and expectation to me. Now I'm a senior in high school and I will be attending UC Santa Cruz next fall. My favorite subject is science, chemistry. I want to be a medical researcher or a doctor and study the cause of diseases. Another challenge, of course, is that I miss my old Kenya because before Ashabab, it was such a happy place. Everything was normal. I hope when, one day the people of Kenya will find a peace again. I hope one day Kenya children will grow up in peace and have childhood I didn't have it. Thank you for listening to the peaceful story of my life. I am one of the young people who have similar stories from all around the world. I'm happy today to be able to share my story in hope that you better understand who we are. Refugees are people who are looking for hope and education and that we support. We can work together to improve the lives of refugees in this country and those around the world. Thank you. The state of the world is pretty scary right now. And, and like I said earlier, uh, there's not a lot of peace going on in the world today. And it seems like things are getting even shakier um, in many different parts of the world. And we have a real fear uh, at the IRC that things are actually going to get worse before they get better. There was an article in the, uh, the San Diego Reader last week that painted IRC in a, a, a bad light, and they actually were quoting from an alt-right website is where they pulled in their data from. And so upon further investigation, found out that they were, um, this website is actually alt-right. They are Holocaust deniers. They are anti-immigrant, anti-kind of everything, um, as a lot of the alt-right is. And when you go to their website, you can read all these articles um, that they use statistics that are framed in a certain way to, to try to get across uh, their, their point of view. And so, for example, um, they are even talking about it's okay to build the wall with Mexico. It will cost $15 billion dollars. But that money will be recouped very quickly um, in a cost savings uh, by keeping people out. Um, and, and there's quite a number of these articles. And so, um, yes, I have personally contacted the reader, the editor um, of the reader, and there is going to be, uh, it will be straightened out. The reader actually had a very positive story on IRC about six months ago where we have been part of the community going around um, to create welcoming cities. And there's been a welcoming cities initiative. And so uh, starting up in Encinitas 
and then uh, there's a handful of cities, and then there was um, Imperial Beach um, had a proclamation to be a welcoming city, and there was a real negative backlash against it. And so the reader actually had a, a very pro-welcoming um, city article about six months ago. So the 65 million people displaced, approximately two-thirds are internally displaced, so IDP, internally displaced person. And so they are still living in their country of origin. They haven't crossed an international boundary, but they're not living at home. And so it depends on what country they're living in, if that government can actually provide services, water, shelter, health, education, or if they can't. And so um, some of the more extreme cases would be Somalia or Syria, South Sudan, uh, Congo, uh, that actually have quite a number of, of IDPs. And so this is, yeah, the answer is yes, IRC does work in inside all of these countries and helping to support uh, IDPs. And of course, we will start with life-saving uh, interventions around food, water, health, medicine. Um, and then if, if, it, if we can, then we will look at other um, socioeconomic programs, um, education, and, and, and so depending on uh, what the needs are and where available funding is. And so we could not do the work we do without volunteers. The IRC here in San Diego, our total budget is around eight or nine million dollars a year. We are primarily grant-based. Uh, a lot of it is federal funding, but we also get state, county, city, local foundations, and then quite a number of just found, um, donations from individuals. We have different galas throughout the year and different fundraising events. And so uh, we have about 85 full-time permanent staff, but we have between four and 500 volunteers every year. And so all the programs I described Really, the, the backbone of it is, is with volunteers. And so if you go to the, the back table afterwards, uh, there's information and contact information, and we have a, a full-time volunteer coordinator that can help um, with you know, explaining more about who we are, what we do. You would come to a volunteer orientation uh, where we explain more about our needs and who we are and how we operate, and then what your interests are and time commitments and, and where those marry up. So I would encourage you and all of you to, to, to check us out. So Catholic Charities is another resettlement agency here in San Diego. And basically everything I described as far as a resettlement agency is they also do the same thing. And we work very closely together um, as we are all on the same team uh, working to resettle refugees in San Diego and get refugees on the, the road to economic self-sufficiency. So the, the safety and security and protection of refugees is the responsibility of the host country. And so this is because they are signatories to a number of these Geneva Conventions on the Rights of Refugees, uh, starting back in the 50s and 60s, where if someone comes to your country because of a well-founded fear of persecution, they cannot return home, that you have agreed as a government of a sovereign country, you will not push them back into harm's way. You will allow them to remain in your country and given refugee status. 
The safety and protection then falls upon the host country, the police, the military, um, local militias in some cases, that will provide the protection to refugees. When you get a refugee camp like the size of some of those photos, it's very challenging and very difficult um, for uh, to provide security inside those camps. A lot of times there's no electricity um, or there's just a few generators uh, for electricity at night or they use candles or kerosene lanterns. Um, it's something that we take a look at as we are setting up a refugee camp for where we are going to put latrines. You want latrines to be in a central location. You don't want them to be outside the camp because when people have to go to the bathroom, then they could be in harm's way. When we put in a water point, because uh, usually it's the women that have to fetch the water, we will put that in a inside the camp because we don't want women to have to go outside the camp. Again, it's all around um, gender-based violence, prevention of gender-based violence. Um, so there's actually a number of things that we can do around the, the prevention piece. Um, with gender-based violence, there's also a response piece. And so then that's where we will have social workers that work for us in the camps, refugees that will be able to provide um, support in case a survivor comes forward. Perhaps they need a, a, um, immediate medical attention, or perhaps they want to go to the police or the authorities, or perhaps they just need psychosocial support for something that happened happened previously. And so um, living in a refugee camp is, is not an ideal place um, to, to live at all. Um, you do not want to raise a family there. And then that's where I go back to. Unfortunately, the average stay in a refugee camp is 17 years. And so that's a, a generation of people that will be uh, living there. There's even some refugee camps that have been there for, for even longer, for decades. We're in uncharted waters right now. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, um, literally day by day, week by week. Um, and so six months ago, we were expecting 110,000 refugees to come from all around the world. Uh, the elections happened. Uh, things have changed. The executive orders. There's been a start, stop, start, stop uh, with the refugee flows. Currently, the U.S. government read on the executive orders and the holdup uh, with the court system is that the executive orders are not in effect and therefore refugees will continue to come. And so even today we are still seeing refugees coming to San Diego and across the country from all around the world. We don't know if this is going to continue. Um, and so for us the next big uh, question mark uh, will be when Congress passes the budget for fiscal year 17. As you know, we're currently on a continuing resolution, meaning that the that Congress has not passed a budget yet for this fiscal year. Um, they're supposed to pass it by the end of this month, and so if and when they do, uh, then we will have a, a better idea around the the funding that's been earmarked for all the different programs. And then uh, they're also looking at uh, the budget for fiscal year 18 that uh, President Trump has already proposed. And they will start to discuss that and, and it will be in a number of committees. So we are looking at uh, the potential impact in San Diego and across the country of a reduction in refugees coming. and But other opportunities that will come along to focus on on the, especially the economics um, around 
refugees and to ensure that they become um, economically self-sufficient. Um, but who knows where we're going to be six months from now or even or a year from now. So it is similar, but it is different. And so an asylum seeker is somebody that has left their country. They have gone to another country, but not the neighboring country. And so, for example, they could be from Africa or South America. They come to Mexico, uh, to Tijuana. And so they are not, they can't just return back to their, their home country across the border. They will then come and present themselves to immigration officials, U.S. immigration officials at the border. And they will request political asylum, meaning that they have a well-founded fear of persecution. So it's the same definition that they feel that they cannot go back home because of, and it will be a protected characteristic, because of religion or ethnic minority or whatever it is. Um, and then it is up to the immigration officer to make a determination right there. They will either refuse and, and not allow someone to come into the United States. They will allow them to come in, but they will have to stay in a detention facility. And the border is, has quite a number of detention facilities, which are prisons. Um, even down in Otay Mesa, uh, there's a 2,500-bed detention facility that they will be placed there. And then they have to wait until they can have a hearing uh, with an immigration court. Uh, that, and that can take months. Um, or the third option is they will allow an asylee to come in to the United States, but then there will be paperwork and documentation, and they will have to go to um, uh, an immigration court in the future. Most resettlement agencies, we actually hire former refugees um, because they have the language capacity, they have the cultural experience, and, and they are the ones that can really help uh, newly arrived refugees acclimate into life in America. So if you come to any of our offices, you'll see a very diverse group of, of staff and employees uh, speaking many different languages from all around the world. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.